Thank you. Okay, well, thank you uh, all for coming. Uh, thank you for the invitation, and congrats to Simon and his team for his very prestigious Carnegie Corporation grant that he received uh, to pursue study on sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization. As I was telling Simon yesterday, that uh, the grant that he applied for was in very high demand. I know several people who applied for the, the, the grant. In fact, our center was thinking of applying for it. Uh, I'm glad that we didn't, and I'm glad that, you know, Simon, you were the recipient of the grant because there's a lot of, um, you know, work that needs to be done and is being done to try and understand this concept of sectarianism, desectarianization, and the role that Saudi Arabia and Iran are playing in this whole process. So I'm happy to be here um, uh, to make a contribution to your, you know, research and your intellectual efforts. Uh, what I want to do uh, uh, this morning in my talk is to uh, really just sort of reflect on and update this book that my colleague and I published uh, as an edited volume two years ago on the topic of sectarianization mapping the new politics of the Middle East. There's an Arabic translation of that book uh, forthcoming with a new preface. Uh, and since the book's publication, I've attended several conferences, uh, workshops, um, um, uh, participated in debates on the broad topic of sectarianism in the contemporary um, Middle East and broader Islamic world. And now there's a growing and expanding literature on the topic. And after hearing, um, getting feedback from colleagues, uh, participating in some of these workshops, um, uh, I realized that the argument that we have in the book is... Uh, much more limited than we originally anticipated. Of course, when you publish a book, you think, aha, you've made this great breakthrough, you've solved the big puzzle, there's nothing more to learn, only to um, realize when the critiques and the feedback and the reviews come in that there's much that you've missed. And so there's much that I think um, we've missed in our attempt to understand sectarianism, but I think um, uh, two observations are worth noting. Number one, I think the core argument of the book still stands, but it's much more limited than we originally anticipated. I want to say something about that uh, during the course of my remarks. And then I've come to appreciate, um, because of this new literature that's being produced, that the whole process and um, manifestation of secularism, attempt to understand it conceptually, theoretically, but also its practical uh, effects on the politics of the Middle East, is a much more complicated phenomenon than I had originally anticipated. And so um, the core argument of our book that I think still applies, it really applies most fundamentally to those states and societies where there's a strong authoritarian regime in power ruling over a society with a mix of Sunni Shia populations that suffers from, the regime suffers from an internal crisis of legitimacy and it's willing to manipulate and politicize sectarian identities in pursuit of political goals, um, both internally and regionally and sometimes internationally. So I think our, our book applies 
uh, really to understanding the dynamics of sectarianism with respect to some of the big cases, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Bahrain, uh, Kuwait to a certain extent. I don't think our book is as helpful as I thought it would be in terms of understanding some of the other cases that are much more complex and different, uh, specifically uh, Lebanon and, um, and Iraq. So this morning, it, I want to present the main theoretical argument of the book. I want to discuss also some of the relevant um, modern uh, history of the Middle East that illuminates the argument of the book. <coughs> And then I want to share with you some new research notes um, um, and research questions, including some scattered thoughts and updates on the topic that should be of interest to faculty and students pursuing research in the broad area of sectarian conflict or communal conflict um, in the Middle East and in other regional contexts. So what we try to do in the book is we try to push back against this very um, popular framing of the topic of sectarian conflict in the Middle East that is very well uh, entrenched in the hearts and minds of the broad reading public, intellectuals, and in the policy field, not in academia. Um, the prevailing wisdom on the topic of sectarian conflict in the Middle East today um, that is widely shared among media commentators and politicians um, they've sought to explain, in other words, the instability in the Middle East today as a function of ancient blood feuds rooted in primordi primordial hatreds and antagonisms between Shias and Sunnis. These conflicts, we are told, have been brewing beneath the surface since the dawn of Islam, going back to the 7th century, moving forward. And it was allegedly as a result of the policies of authoritarian strongmen who managed to keep a lid on these enduring rivalries, but as a result of the weakening of authoritarianism in the region, as a result of the Arab Spring, this alleged perennial feature of Muslim societies rooted in unyielding intolerance has bubbled to the top, producing the current chaos and turmoil that's afflicting the region. This view is so ubiquitous, particularly in the United States, that you encounter it repeatedly. Um, almost everywhere you sort of um, pick up a magazine, a news item, or read a political commentary. Um, so I'm on a plane about two years ago, uh, traveling from the United States to Canada, where I'm originally from, and I pick up my copy of the New York Times uh, um, on the plane, and it's the Sunday edition. And if you know the New York Times, the Sunday edition has a special magazine insert called the New York Times magazine. And before me is a 2,000-word essay by an American journalist who spent a lot of time in the Middle East, Scott Anderson, um, a 20,000-word uh, essay. Um, a 20,000-word essay on the topic, Fractured Lands, How the Arab World Came Apart, in this special issue, which later became actually a book. And in the essay, the author seeks to ask the question and then answer this question, why did the democratic transitions in the Arab world fail so mi miserably, producing the current chaos and turmoil and mayhem that is unfolding before us? What is really at the roots of these developments that held such promise only a few years ago, but now have ended in disaster. 
the framing that the author uses in this widely circulated article uh, is revealing. Uh, uh, Scott Anderson notes that nations and states in the region are all artificial, echoing a popular view that the roots of the current conflict really um, go back to the Sykes-Picot Accord in the early part of the 20th century. This is sort of a derivative of the ancient sectarian hatred thesis, but it's a different variation of it. It's actually very popular among journalists, among um, some intellectuals who try to interpret the turmoil of the Middle East as a function of the legacy of colonialism and imperialism in the region. All these fake modern states um, with, um, with uh, very artificial borders uh, are really where we should locate the problem of Middle East instability. And the author goes on to note that at the core of the Middle East lies, quote, extraordinary complex tapestries of tribes and sub-tribes and clans, ancient social orders that remain the population's principal source of identification and allegiance. And then he goes on to discuss, quote, ancient forces of tribalism and sectarianism that are reasserting their centrifugal pull due to the weakness of authoritarian rule that has resulted from the Arab Spring revolts. Now, all of this sounds very comfortable, very familiar, and very reasonable to Western ears. In many ways, it's the common mainstream worldview. Writing in the New York Times around the same time, Thomas Friedman, uh, reflecting this dominant view, observed that, quote, sectarian tensions in the Middle East have long been managed by iron fists from above. But after long-standing dictators were toppled, a horrifying war of all against all has exploded. Now, of course, this view has very dire foreign policy uh, consequences because the assumption here, if you accept this framing, is that you can never promote or support democracy in the Middle East. It will never work if you allow people the right to choose, to exercise self-determination, to voice their opinion, you will get a sectarian knife fight, not democracy and human rights. And the policies prescription that then flows from this is that the West has no choice, no alternative, but to support authoritarian regimes in the Middle East because the alternative is chaos and mayhem, witness the Arab Spring. And so today, there is an unstated, unofficial view in many Western capitals that as bad and as repressive and as heinous as Bashar al-Assad is with respect to his record of war crimes and crimes against humanity and chemical weapons, perhaps the fact that he's triumphed and that the war in Syria now is almost over, perhaps that might be a good thing because it will bring stability to the region. And there can be perhaps some normality and stability under the iron fist of a strong leader. Of course, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not very much. That's the prevailing view. And of course, one of the most prominent, I think, um, defenders of this position uh, has been none other than the former American President Barack Obama, who on several occasions, Obama spoke and used the term ancient sectarian differences as a means of explaining the conflict in Syria and the broader Middle East. These ancient divisions, he asserted, 
propel the instability in the Arab world, which is, quote, rooted in conflicts that date back a millennia. And in an interview that he gave just before he left office, President Obama took it a step further and said, in the Middle East today, the only organizing principles are sectarian. Prominent American politicians, both Republicans, Democrats, American journalists, both on the left and the right, uh, have articulated very similar positions to this one. And we summarize in our book and quote extensively from these positions in our introduction. All of this sounds very intellectually soothing, very familiar, very um, comfortable to many audiences in the West, in part because it reinforces long-standing pejorative orientalist themes and tropes that masquerade as informed opinion about the Middle East and the Islamic world. Even more respectable voices, people who have PhDs, who uh, write with uh, insight and opinion, have articulated a variation of this theme. So just to cite one example, Richard Haas, who's a big shot in the American foreign policy establishment debate, president of the Council on Foreign Relations, um, articulated a variation of this ancient sectarian hatred thesis that some of you might have heard before, where he said at one point that the Middle East is a deeply flawed part of the world because it never really came to terms with modernity. And that's what's going on. That's why you have sectarianism. That's why you have these types of tensions and turmoil. One scholar who actually you know, does have a PhD in historian of the Middle East, and he's been very uh, well known in the debate on Syria, Joshua Landis, has even suggested that the Middle East is going through what he called the great sorting out, similar to Central Europe during World War I and World War II, where national borders shifted to create more ethnically homogenous states. In the Arab world, by contrast, after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire in the 1919 Paris Peace Conference, the new borders that emerged produced a situation where you have all these different peoples living cheek by jowl, many of them not wanting to live together, not knowing how to live together. In other words, sort of hinting that these sectarian conflicts, particularly in the case of Syria, were sort of a good thing because they were sort of settling new and producing new realities that were more natural to the system, to the Middle East um, uh, society's natural sort of identity. So in the introduction to our book, we sort of pose the question after laying out these arguments, does this framing in any way help us understand sectarian conflict in the Middle East, or does it lead us astray? And as you might be able to anticipate, the argument that we lay out is that it leads us astray. It is very unhelpful. The problem with the ancient sectarian or primordial uh, thesis is that it assumes is something constant and unchanging about religion and culture and its propensity to produce violence while failing to explain the stark variation in civil conflict over time. In other words, the problem with this particular framing of uh, sectarian conflict rooted in deep historical um, antagonisms, whether it's the dawn of Islam or whether it's in the Safavid sort of Ottoman Empire tensions or whether it's in the early you know, uh, 20th century as a result of Sykes Picot, um, this framing does not sort of, I think, help us understand the critical question of why now, why at this particular moment, why has sectarian conflict in the Middle East increased today in this time period 
and not before. There's also the related question uh, that I think hasn't received sufficient attention, the geography question. Why is Sunni-Shia conflict more intense in some parts of the Islamic world uh, but not in others. So we advanced this thesis called the sectarianization thesis as an alternative theoretical and analytical framework to challenge what we say is the lazy orientalist reliance on sectarianism as a catch-all explanation to explain the turmoil and instability in the Middle East today. <clears throat> and we propose the term sectarianization and its verb cognate to sectarianize which we define as an active process shaped by political actors operating within specific contexts, pursuing political goals that involve the mobilization of popular sentiments around particular identity markers. Class dynamics, fragile states, geopolitical rivalries, and great power politics also shape the sectarianization process. The usual term sectarianism is devoid of such references. It sort of implies a static, trans-historical, long-standing given based on some alleged immutable and enduring characteristic of Arab and Islamic societies from the seventh century until today. And so one of the key aspects of um, the sectarianization thesis that really uh, is a reflection of my own sort of research interest, because I'm very interested in trying to understand political authoritarianism, and its converse, democratization. Um, and so we put a lot of emphasis in our um, framing of sectarianization on the theme of authoritarianism. This form of political rule has long dominated the politics of the Middle East, and its corrosive legacy has deeply sullied and corrupted the polities and societies of the region. Authoritarianism, not theology, is the critical factor in the sectarianization process. Authoritarian regimes in the Middle East have deliberately manipulated sectarian identities in various ways as a strategy of deflecting demands for political change from below and perpetuating political rule. This anti-democratic political context is essential for understanding sectarian conflict in Muslim societies today, especially in those societies where there's a mix of Sunni and Shia populations. To paraphrase from the famous aphorism from the Prussian general Karl von Clausewitz about war being the continuation of politics by other means, in our reading in the book, uh, that we edited, sectarian conflict in the Middle East today is primarily about the continuation of political rule via identity mobilization. So um, let me say something about um, um, some schools of thought that draw upon the literature on ethnic political mobilization. Um, to make better sense of the politics of sectarianism, we rely on the literature on ethnic mobilization or ethnic political mobilization. In the social science literature, there's often sort of three broad schools of thought that explain this phenomenon, primordialism, instrumentalism, and constructivism. We sort of try and lay out some sort of a constructivist argument that adopts a middle ground between um, primordialists and instrumentalists. Uh, uh, proponents of this constructivist interpretation of um, political mobilization, ethnic or religious political mobilization, argue that religious identity is not fixed, but it's rather a political construct based on a dense web of social relationships that form in the context of modernity. Like primordialists, constructivists recognize the importance of seemingly immutable features of ethnic and religious identity. They do have a grounding, they do have 
uh, a value in terms of how people think about themselves. But constructivists you know, disagree that this inevitably by itself leads to conflict. On the other hand, constructivists share with instrumentalists the view that elites and leaderships play a critical role in the mobilization process. Disagreement emerges over the degree to which these identities can be manipulated. In brief, constructivists do not believe that ethnicity or religion is inherently conflictual, but rather that conflict flows from pathological social systems and political opportunity structures that breed conflict from multiple social cleavages beyond the control of a single individual. So with this framework, as a backdrop, sectarianism or sectarianization in the Middle East becomes more intelligible. Sectarian identities could not be mobilized unless differences in belief and historic memory compelled religious groups into collective action around a particularist identity marker. Therefore, two critical questions emerge. Why are these conflicts intensifying now and not at other moments in time, and why in some regions more than in others? In other words, what explains the flaring of sectarian conflict at specific moments in time, um, uh, let's say uh, in uh, parts of the Middle East, in some countries, uh, in contrast to others? Contrary to popular opinion, if you know the history, Sunni-Shia relations, for example, were not always conflict-ridden, nor was sectarianism a strong political force in the modern politics of the Middle East until relatively recently. And I'll expand upon that point in a moment. How did these seemingly pluralistic societies, these mosaics in the Middle East, become unglued so precipitously and seemingly overnight? What are the forces that are driving sectarianization? And under what social conditions does the likelihood of sectarian conflict increase? The level of intensity of sectarian conflict also varies geographically. So you have sectarian conflict in Pakistan, uh, but you don't have this type of conflict in India. I think that's been Un understudied. Uh, what explains the variation? Uh, one of the authors, one of the contributors to our book is uh, Professor Vali Nas, who is a prominent you know, social scientist. Um, now he's the dean of the Johns Hopkins School of International Studies. And in his contribution to our book, he argues that we must examine the agency of state actors in the mobilization process. The agency of state actors in identity mobilization is absolutely critical if you want to understand this phenomenon. In past, theories of ethnic conflict have generally treated the state as a passive actor in identity mobilization. The standard narrative held that competition from within societies among, among contending ethnic groups will inevitably shift to the area and the arena of the state as these sub-state actors vied for control of various state institutions as a means of enhancing their power over rival groups. The intensification of these struggles would inevitably lead to the weakness, collapse, and failure of the state. But drawing upon research that he has undertaken in South Asia and in Southeast Asia, primarily Pakistan uh, in particular, Vali Nas has suggested that far from being passive victims of identity mobilization, states have a logic of their own and can be directly instrumental in manipulating protagonists and enriching identity cleavages. Identity mobilization here is rooted in the project of power acquisition by state actors, not the behavior necessarily or exclusively of social elites. These state actors do not champion necessarily the cause of any one community, but see political gain in the conflict between competing identities. 
Nas's insight here helps deepen our theoretical understanding of identity mobilization in that it pushes the conversation beyond primordial differences and the manipulation of identities for instrumental uh, use uh, by elite leaders and focuses atten our attention on the state and on state-society relations. So one of the key theoretical sort of arguments that we advance in the book, theoretical claims that we advance in the book, um, is that a primordialist understanding of the current disorder in the Middle East based on these uh, um, deep historical readings of the roots of Sunni-Shia conflict are completely um, um, unhelpful in understanding what's going on today. Um, this view that is based on these, uh, this alleged Sunni-Shia chasm that goes back to the seventh century clouds rather than illuminates the complex realities of the politics of the region, which are better understood as a series of deep and expanding developmental crises, both political and economic, that the region has been facing since independence, roughly World War II moving forward. The policies of leading Western liberal democracies toward the Middle East, especially the United States of America, have exacerbated these political and economic problems, particularly with respect to sectarianism. I think that whole topic has been under-examined as a separate research project. And you can sort of see it right now if you are following closely Donald Trump's Middle East policy, where his embrace of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates has, in, has exacerbated sectarian conflict, because it basically has aligned US policy with Saudi and Emirati foreign policy, and Israel actually plays a role in this process as well. While it's true that religious identities are now much more salient, much more prominent in the politics of the Middle East than before, it's also true that these identities have been deliberately politicized and lethalized by state actors in pursuit of political gain. The politics of authoritarian regimes is the key context for understanding this problem. In other words, there is a symbiotic relationship between pressure from society down below, which demands greater inclusion, respect, representation, versus the refusal from ruling elites from above to share or relinquish power that produces a particular dynamic that informs the process of sectarianization. Uh, this um, crisis of legitimacy that many regimes in the Middle East face needs to be carefully managed. And the politics of sectarianism, or sectarianization, if you want to be more accurate, the deliberate manipulation of, of religious identities is a result of this political dynamic. Notwithstanding the rhetoric that we hear from some Sunni monarchies in the Middle East, or for some presidents of life in the various Arab republics, ruling elites in the Middle East are not truly embedded to a particular sectarian identity. The drivers of politics is not some sort of defense of a theological doctrine or loyalty to the collective interests of a religious sect. The core allegiance of ruling elites is to their political thrones and their various clients, whether Sunni or Shia, who can help sustain and advance their power. What's really salient here, we argue in the book as one sort of key claim, is not religious piety, but political power. 
As Madawi al-Rashid writes in our volume, sectarianism is not inherently a historical quality of the people of the Middle East. There are sectarian entrepreneurs and state-supported religious scholars who continue to flourish in the present by manipulating these identities in the interest of ruling regimes and often at their request. Sectarianism, in other words, is a modern political phenomenon that is nourished by authoritarian regimes whose rule depends on invoking these age-old identities that become lethally politicized at particular moments in time in response to political crises. In short, sectarianism by itself does not help explain the current turmoil in the Middle East, but I think political authoritarianism is a better point of entry. Again, not for all of the cases, but some of the main cases that I mentioned in my introductory remarks. So let me now turn to some of the um, uh, political history of the Middle East that illuminates this broad theoretical framing. And you know, we quote from Shadi Hamid, who's sort of a uh, policy analyst, um, sometimes controversial, but he does, in one of his writings, um, make an argument that overlaps with ours, that there is a temporal problem with the ancient, his, ancient hatred thesis <clears throat> that applies just as much to Syria or Lebanon or today as it did to the Balkans in the 1990s. If there is something constant about culture and its predisposition to violence, then how can we explain the variation <clears throat> in civil conflict over short periods of time? And so consider this photograph. It's a good point, it's a good photograph to sort of illuminate the point and undermine the claim that there is this you know, deep-rooted uh, Sunni-Shia antagonism that has um, roots that go back to the you know, early days of Islam. So in 2006, um, Shibli Telhami from the University of Maryland, who is a pollster, published a very influential and widely respected opinion poll uh, in the Sunni Middle East, asking people which political leaders do they admire and respect the most. And the two leaders that were overwhelmingly at the top of the list among Sunni populations in the region, not that long ago, but 13 years ago, um, were Hassan Nasrallah number one and uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad number two. Two Shia political leaders, the most popular in the Sunni Arab world. How can we explain that? And of course, one explanation is this was happening in the immediate aftermath of the Israel-Hezbollah uh, war in Lebanon. But the fact that um, within the Sunni Muslim world, you had uh, two political leaders, one of them who's not even an Arab, um, uh, topping the list of respected leaders undermines this claim of deep-seated antagonisms. It's not long ago that that um, poll took place. Of course, things have changed quite significantly since this period, in part because of the Arab Spring uprisings and in part because of the conflict in Syria and the very <laughs> catastrophic role that Iran and Hezbollah has played in Syria on behalf of the Assad regime, undermining, I think, a lot of the soft power that the Islamic Republic of Iran had in the region, particularly in the Sunni Arab world. Um, um, and so that was, I think, a big uh, uh, transformative moment. I'll say more about that in a second. Um, there are these, I think, turning points. If you want to sort of track the history of sectarian conflict in the Middle East, it really begins in 1979. Um, uh, and I'll say something about 1979 in a moment. Then there's 2003, and of course 2003 is the Iraq, uh, American, US, British 
led Iraq uh, invasion and occupation, another key turning point, and then of course 2011, the Arab Spring. I think if you're interested in the political history of sectarian conflict between Sunnis and Shia Muslims, that's the period that really matters most, not this, you know, um, this deep seventh century sort of argument that you sometimes hear, uh, particularly in the United States. Now, of course, the Saudi-Iran rivalry on a regional level is absolutely important. I think these are the key resource, uh, important states, regional actors with a lot of resources that have in different ways, through different sectarianization processes, mobilized constituencies around these particular identity markers. The actual processes of sectarianism, the way they manifest themselves, the content are very different, but the goals are very much the same. Uh, advancing the national interest of the ruling elites of these two societies. Um, it's often forgotten that prior to 1979, Iran and Saudi Arabia actually had quite amicable relations. People forget this. And this is another argument that I think can be used to undermine the claim of these. You know, you often hear, at least in the, in the, in the public debate in the United States, Shia-led Iran versus Sunni-led Saudi Arabia, and, you know, implying that that's really what's going on. But prior to 1979, uh, these countries had very close relations, in part because they were monarchies, they were allied with the United States, they had a very similar reading of security dilemmas, of threat perceptions, of uh, where the challenges in the region lied. So just to give you one uh, historical moment here that I think has often been forgotten, is there was another uh, uh, war in Yemen prior to the one taking place right now, another Yem Yemeni civil war in the early 1960s, and Iran and Saudi Arabia were on the same side of that war in supporting a Shia monarchy against the nationalist Republican forces backed by Gamal Abdel Nasser in what was then described as the Arab Cold War. Uh, back then, the key fault lines in the region were not sect, um, but they were um, regime type, um, a particular ideology, and Cold War alliances. So if you think about this particular moment, it completely undermines this uh, claim of sort of, you know, Shia Iran and Sunni uh, Saudi Arabia sort of uh, battling it out uh, over, um, over um, you know, religious or theological differences that have deep historical roots. So 1979, of course, is the big turning point. It's a major event in the uh, politics of the region. Iran's Islamic Revolution. And of course, it's often forgotten <clears throat> that the revolution presents and proclaims itself not as a Shia revolution, but as an Islamic revolution. In fact, if you look at Khomeini's statements consistently, and even by his successor, Ali Khamenei, the position that the regime has always articulated is that we are um, uh, an Islamic revolution. We believe in Shia Muslim um, Shia Sunni solidarity. In fact, every year Iran has this um, this Islamic Unity Week, where it invites Sunnis together to, at a conference, to talk about common concerns. Um, um, but of course, the response from uh, authoritarian regimes that feared the political power of 
political Islam coming from Iran, the response is um, one of trying to roll back and contain the power and the influence and the appeal of a political Islam coming out of Iran. And one of the big developments that I think increases Sunni-Shia tensions is the Iran-Iraq war, which was backed, financed, supported by the Gulf states, supporting uh, Saddam Hussein um, and trying to um, roll back Iran's appeal. This is, I think, an important early turning point where we begin to see tensions and you begin to see antagonisms uh, in very different ways um, between uh, Sunnis and Shias in the Middle East. One of the interesting developments is actually uh, within Iraq, where Khomeini was constantly appealing to Iraqi Shia Muslims to uh, topple Saddam Hussein and not be part of his war effort. That didn't have a lot of appeal for interesting reasons that are worth, I think, exploring uh, with respect to uh, questions of identity. I think the Afghanistan transnational jihad has been understudied because it's a moment where you have the gathering of these militant groups informed by a particular emerging militant Salafi creed that has a particular uh, anti-Shia orientation. Not explicitly, but it takes on that form. Um, and this is where the germination of the Al-Qaeda and then later ISIS sort of worldview starts to germinate. And it contributes to Sunni-Shia antagonisms and tensions in ways that have been underappreciated. And this is where um, one of the leading sort of um, um, you know, radical extremists from a militant uh, Sunni Islam starts to gain um, uh, notoriety. Um, Abu um, uh, uh, Zarqawi, who is sort of the Al-Qaeda sort of representative in Iraq, takes the Al-Qaeda sort of worldview, which was sort of moderately anti-Shia, and takes it into a different direction in Iraq, <clears throat> where he deliberately tries to stoke a sectarian civil war, and he repeatedly, if you read his writings, invokes these um, dehumanizing references to Shia Muslims. And that's where you begin to see this uptake, particularly in Iraq. And of course, this is sort of you know, in the immediate aftermath of the 2003 American invasion, a major turning point. If, you're understanding, if you want to understand the history of Sunni-Shia sort of antagonisms and regional rivalries, you have to make reference to the, uh, to the year 2003 and what happened regionally. And then in the immediate aftermath, you begin to see the rhetoric of the Sunni monarchs and the Sunni authoritarian leaders, what my friend Muhammad Fadl calls the axis of Arab autocracy, invoking the term the Shia Crescent. The Shia are taking over. Um, uh, they're dominating the region. And of course, the fear, I would argue, is less theological. In fact, I don't think it's theological at all, but it's political. It's the fear of um, political Islam. It's the fear of expanding Iran's regional influence that is exploited. The claims of a Shia corridor are taking uh, uh, root in the rhetoric and in the press of official state media. Um, and largely this has to do with the fact that Iraq, which was you know, under the control of Saddam Hussein, is seeing the emergence of uh, Shia political parties that have sympathy, alliances, connections with the Islamic Republic. Of course, around this time, there's also the rise in prestige and influence of Hezbollah. Having defeated Israel in the south, there is deep worry that this example is going to um, affect political stability in the Sunni authoritarian regimes. And so there's a rhetoric that builds a deliberate cultivation of an anti-Shia narrative <clears throat> that starts to shape relations. Um, the rise to power of the Saudi crown prince takes it to a new level. Um, 
I mentioned this in my remarks yesterday in London, about a year ago, the Saudi Crown Prince was in Saudi Arabia, and when he was asked about questions of relations with Iran, possible reconciliation, uh, Sunni-Shia relations, he said, um, it can never happen because Iran's supreme leader, he said, is worse than Hitler. Hitler, he said, just wanted to take over Europe. The Iran, the Iranian supreme leader, according to the Saudi crown prince, wants to take over the entire world. And so with that as a worldview, obviously there can be no negotiation, no diplomacy, no reconciliation. So I think this is sort of another upping of the ante of uh, uh, rhetoric coming out of authoritarian regimes that have added to the problem. And of course, Iran itself <coughs> contributes to this rhetoric. You know, hardliners within Iran brag about the expansion of Iranian influence in the region, how major capitals in the Middle East have fallen to the Iranian revolution, sort of reinforcing the narrative that is then picked up in uh, the authoritarian regimes in the Sunni Arab world. Iran is very proud and it brags about its successes in Iraq and particularly in Syria, which then sort of then reinforce this counter narrative of, um, Sunni, of, of Shia expansionism. Uh, now, 2011, again, is this other major turning point um, with respect to sectarianism because it shook the foundations of Middle Eastern authoritarianism. And one of the responses of the authoritarian regimes to the upsurge in popular demands for political change was to play the sectarian card. And unfortunately, when uh, a lot of people think about this uh, topic, they tend to read history backwards instead of forwards. They look at Shia-Sunni antagonism today, and I think it's always been that way. Not seeing the history as I've just sort of presented it, where it really begins uh, the real tensions, the real attempt by regimes to play the sectarian card begin in 1979, not before then. So that's an important, I think, point if one wants to understand the history. And in many of the re revolutions of the Arab Spring that had Sunni-Shia populations in Bahrain and in Syria, the early protests were very non-sectarian if you study them. There's a really great documentary that I show to my students every year on Bahrain um, called Shouting in the Dark, uh, published by Al Jazeera, uh, based on a documentary sort of look at what was happening in Bahrain in the early days, because they had a film crew there, and they chronicled everything. And it's a really powerful, persuasive um, <clears throat> documentary that looks at what happened to the Bahraini Arab Spring uprising and how it became sectarianized. And you clearly see this you know, the non-sectarian aspect of it, but then how the regime in Bahrain, as in Syria, deliberately pursued a policy of sectarianization to divide the opposition internally so that they could crush these <coughs> protests. Um, so the regime cracked down on these uh, Arab Spring protests in many of these countries. Uh, some of them that are examined in our book looks at how this process of sectarianism and sectarianization was deliberately employed as a strategy of regime survival. Um, uh, Madawi al-Rashid, who writes on Saudi Arabia, you know, invokes the term sectarianism or sectarianization as a counter-revolutionary strategy. Um, by the regimes, in particular in, in the case of her chapter in Saudi Arabia, as a response to the Arab Spring, saying that the protests in the Shia eastern provinces had nothing to do about Saudi policy, but were all coming from Iran, all coming from the outside, all an external plot to create mayhem within uh, the Saudi kingdom. This counter-revolution, you know, of course, in the Arab Spring is broadly successful. It was managed by the deep states, 
by generals, gangsters, and jihadists, um, of which sectarianism played a particularly pernicious role, particularly in those societies that have a mix of Sunnitian populations. And of course, one of the under, I think, uh, studied and appreciated facts about the counter-revolution is that while a lot of attention has been paid on the mobilization of young Sunni Muslim kids from around the world going to join ISIS, Iran has also been involved in its own mobilization of young Muslim kids, in this case from Shia backgrounds, mobilizing them, financing them, promising them sort of financial rewards to fight in, uh, in Syria. Um, arguably, the numbers of Iran's Shia foreign legions are larger than the number of young people who went to join ISIS. But this is part of Iran's you know, sectarianization strategy. The way they do it, um, we could perhaps talk about in the question and answer session. It's a very different strategy uh, than the Saudi um, Arab Sunni monarchies. The fundamental goals are the same, but the actual content of the strategy is very different. And so Iran begins to do this quite significantly and with a lot of success in Syria, including uh, population transfers to help tighten uh, support for Bashar al-Assad. <laughs> in the chapter uh, uh, that we've published, uh, uh, Basil Salouk has a wonderful uh, chapter on the geopolitics of how this plays out between um, uh, the major regional powers that I strongly recommend. Um, and so when we think about the process of sectarianization, my colleague <coughs> Danny Postel has talked about these vectors of sectarianization, these influences. Top-down, state-generated is the one that we focus on in our book. But there's also other sort of vectors or forces of sectarianization that are bottom-up, that have roots within um, uh, uh, relationships between societal groups and that are invoked by local sort of actors that don't necessarily have a direct connection to state policy from above, but also produce tensions between Muslim sectarian groups. You also have outside-in influences that affect the sectarianization process. You have dynamics within countries that then have transnational effects across borders that affect the sectarianization strategy. Um, let me just sort of end here with um, uh, some concluding remarks because I realize my time is up. One of the, I think, really important um, scholars who's writing on uh, sectarianization uh, today is Fanar Haddad, who um, is based in Singapore. He's written extensively on the topic. He has a new book coming out, <clears throat> and he shared with me one of his chapters on um, on, on, on the topic, where he argues that the term sectarianism is too ambiguous, too confusing, too um, uh, misleading to help us understand what's going on. And he argues instead that in order to understand the process of sectarianization, we should focus on the question of sectarian identities. How does someone's identity become primarily uh, manifested around a particular sect as opposed to some other identity marker? What is the process and the dynamics that um, explain the rise of sectarian identity? And how can we then, after understanding the dynamics of the uh, politics of identity, then go on to understand sectarian conflict? And so he has this sort of uh, a slide that he shared with me based on his forthcoming book, um, where he tries to make uh, the argument that in order to understand 
what's happening today in the Middle East with respect to sectarian conflict, we have to have uh, a, multi, um, a multi-layered approach. And he says this multi-layer approach contains different overlapping, mutually uh, reinforcing sets of dynamics with no clear demarcation. On one level, in some conflicts, you have doctrine and religion that plays a much more salient role in explaining conflict. You also have subnational identities, you have national identities, you have trans and international identities, but you also have the dynamics of class, of patron clientelism, of ethnicity, um, of tribalism and regionalism that overlaps with people's sectarian identity. You know, historically in uh, Lebanon and historically in Iraq, um, if you were Shia, it meant that you were economically less well off. At one time, you would see a lot of, I think, um, uh, participation of marginalized, lower-class, poverty-stricken Shia participating in left-wing or communist social movements as a way of advancing their uh, position in society, because that was a way of overcoming their um, their disenfranchisement. Um, that's changed right now. So he, the, the argument that, that uh, um, Fanar makes in his book, and I encourage you to pick it up, he's written a summary of it, and I can point you to it, is that we have to look at how um, sectarian identity is really the best point of departure, and how sectarian identity is often imagined, formulated, and mobilized, and expressed, and, ver- and often mutually interdependent and reinforcing ways that revolve around these categories of religion, subnationalism, nationalism, and trans or international identity. Uh, And that's a better entry point, he argues, for trying to understand sectarian identity and sectarian conflict in all of its complexity. I've done injustice to his argument, but if you read the actual chapter that I was privy to, it's quite an eloquent, I think, statement that's very good for researchers um, uh, uh, and students working on this topic to to read. So let me just end with some research questions and thoughts here. Uh, We argue in the book and I think this partially explains what's going on, but it doesn't explain everything, that the key fault line in the Middle East today, contrary to popular opinion, is not Sunni and Shia, but really authoritarian states versus their own societies. Um, um, And how um, sectarianism is used, or sectarianization is a strategy, often to deflect these demands uh, from society that are bubbling Uh, 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 and and demanding change uh, at the level of the state. Sectarianism from below also, I think, has been understudied. It's really the work of anthropologists, of sociologists, to look at the dynamics of communal relations, sectarian relations at the local level, in a particular community, in a particular uh, society that has a mix of populations. Um, What is the difference between sectarianism, confessionalism, and consociationalism? as political systems that seek to try and manage group conflict in terms of a political settlement. Those of us who are interested in politics will recognize the terms consociationalism and confessionalism. Um, There is, I think, a lack of clarity on how these things relate to Middle East sectarianism. And under what social conditions, fundamentally, do conflicts transform themselves into sectarian disputes, or from sectarian disputes to confessional conflicts? What's unique about sectarian conflict? How different is it from ethnic, class, or communal conflict? Where does religion fit in, or does, is religion simply just a marker of identity that is manipulated? And what we're really dealing with here, 
is communal conflict. That's not that different than group conflict in other social or political settings. It does raise the question, to what extent is religion really a factor? Um, and of course, part of the challenge for research now is to try and identify the different types and forms of sectarianisms or sectarianization processes. Um, the Iran uh, process of sectarianization is very different than the Saudi one. Uh, Iran does not publicly announce or try to dehumanize or undermine the legitimacy of Sunni Muslims in the public sphere. Within its theological schools it does, but there's not a public attempt to claim that Sunni Muslims are heretics uh, in contrast to the Saudi position, which is often very publicly supported um, along those lines. Uh, but the dynamics, in other words, of trying to compare and contrast uh, different types of sectarianization is, I think, uh, something that needs to be studied. And let me just end, since I'm coming from the United States, with a comment about Donald Trump and sectarian conflict. Now, what's interesting if you're following the politics of the United States is that in the last three years since Donald Trump emerged as president, you have seen a rise in uh, tensions, not sectarian tensions in the United States, but group tensions, communal tensions, specifically racial tensions in the United States between African American communities, Latino communities, and to a certain extent, Muslim communities, and the broader white majority society. In places like Ferguson, Missouri, Charlottesville, Virginia, there has been polarizing events that have captured the attention of the nation revolving around the US national anthem being played at NFL football games, to debates over the tearing down of statues from the US Civil War legacy to police brutality, um, against African Americans. What explains the rising tension and animosity and group conflict in the United States today that isn't sectarian, but it certainly is communal or in this case uh, racial conflict in ways that we haven't seen over the last 50 years in the United States? How to explain this phenomenon? I think the reasons are many, but it would be a huge distortion to answer this question without referencing the figure of Donald Trump himself and the policies that he has pursued, both as a presidential candidate and as president. In 2015, from right, right from the beginning, when he came down that escalator to announce his candidacy as president of the United States, Donald Trump has sought to deliberately politicize, deliberately mobilize white people around a particular white nationalist identity marker that is now deeply rooted and uh, captures the imagination of a lot of people. If you're following the politics of the United States, Donald Trump, despite all of his bombast, all of his bigotry, all of his bravado, is at 45% in the polls. That's important to take note of. A recent study revealed that in the United States, where Donald Trump held a political rally during his campaign of 20, in 2016, Wherever there was a political rally, there was a 226% increase in hate crimes in that county. This suggests evidence that rhetoric, speech, and the role of political leaders matters in the mobilization of people around particular identity markers. And I think this phenomenon does have parallels with one of the arguments that we advance in our book. Um, uh, with respect to the deliberate political mobilization of people around a constructed identity in pursuit of political 
gain. Now, the U.S. case is, of course, different than the Middle East, but it does highlight, the figure of, does, of Donald Trump does highlight uh, one of the themes that I just mentioned in our book uh, in terms of trying to understand the drivers of group conflict and the very important role that political leaders play in the mobilization of political identities. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Nada.